that HIV is a race-specific bioweapon. There has been global cooling for the last eight or nine years. And when you add up all those dates in the Bible and the six days of creation, you only get thousands of years. There's nothing in observational science that contradicts that. What? Who wouldn't want a picnic with Thor? Unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world. And I'm in a field looking at a parasitic pair of gonads. That's quite an image I have in my head there. You'll have to cancel that trip to the moon that you had planned for next month. Hello, heathens. You're listening to The Science of Sarcasm, a podcast where we examine the worst examples of bad science and politics, pop culture, and the media. Every episode brings you a new guest from the world of science education to discuss their work and to share their pet pseudoscientific peeves. Today's guest is the host of the YouTube channel, Shed Science. She is currently studying her PhD in Oxford, and she is the winner of the Guardian Very Short Science video competition and the Oxford Science Slam. It's Sally LePage. Hello, Sally. Hello. And how are you tonight? I'm very well, thank you. What a lovely introduction. You make me sound so accomplished. I, but that's the thing. You keep doing stuff. It's not my fault. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shall try to do less stuff, shall I? Yeah, just buy a South Park box set and veg out on the couch for a couple of weeks and let the rest of <laughs> everyone else catch up. Maybe, although unfortunately I don't have a few weeks for my holidays. I'm going back to work pretty soon after the Christmas break. I heard from listening to your recent interview on the League of Nerds podcast that your work actually involves quite a lot of lectures as opposed to just being a straightforward research doctorate. Yeah, so compared to most research doctorates, so most PhDs are only three years long and you just do your own research for those three years. Whereas for me, I because I've gone straight from a bachelor's, so for those that don't know, bachelor's is kind of like your standard undergraduate course and most people do a master's course in between their bachelor's and their doctorate. Because I'm not doing that, I chose to do a PhD which is four years long rather than three years long, and I've got some lectures stuck at the beginning of it as well. But I finished all my lectures now for the year. That's it, basically. I'm now straight into research like any other normal PhD. Okay, and for those who aren't familiar with your channel, what is your focus and which field are you currently working in? So my channel, Shed Science, I call it the interesting bits of biology, uh, which is a bit of a silly title because to me, everything in biology is pretty interesting. Um, and there are areas that I find interesting from all over biology, whether they be natural history. So I've got some on grass snakes and a song about starfish with a McFly cover, of course, very sensible. And uh, things like biochemistry with um, how DNA was discovered. Um, but there is a large focus on evolution, and this is because my area of interest in biology and research is evolution, and particularly looking at evolution and behaviour and like um, how animals interact with each other, and particularly looking at kind of how animals go about mating with each other, how they choose their mates, how their fitness is affected by how they choose their mates and looking at all the different aspects of reproductive behavior and biology and the evolution of that so that's kind of what i'm interested in and my videos are taking the most interesting way i can possibly think of to describe those little bits of evolution that i find really cool and all the stories in biology yes yeah, such as your i think it was a street fighter recreation for your kin selection video yes um 
what was it? I can't remember. So I don't actually play video games. So I think Mortal Kombat, that's the one. It was a, a Mortal Kombat knockoff for um, my explanation of inclusive fitness. But because I don't play Mortal Kombat or any of these kind of combat games, I had to get a lot of my friends' input on that one. Uh, evolution was also the subject of your Guardian video entry. Yes. Uh, so I had to pick any topic to explain in a minute, and so I naturally picked evolution because it's the topic I'm most interested in. Well, my first section in these shows is called News and Nonsense. Now, usually I would have one very positive piece of news from the world of science and one piece of dross which I've managed to pick up on the internet. But today we're going to be talking about, as well as the science that goes into researching the sexes, we're also going to be talking about the sexism, which is at times quite prevalent in science and unfortunately when it comes to gender issues it is quite difficult to find a positive piece of news so I'm just going to go with what I have and I apologize for the lack of fun okay okay so the first piece of news is sexism in science UK study finds women scientists get fewer grants less funding than male counterparts yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, here's the blurb going into it is female scientists in the UK received fewer grants than their male colleagues and when women did receive grants they were on average 43% less than those given to men. Did you realise the number was going to be that big? 43! <laughs> That's... I just got to... I'm kind of speechless at that actually. 43%! I didn't realise it was going to be that big. I... Ah, oh, that's ridiculous. Okay, so going into a bit more detail, researchers from London's Infectious Disease Research Network analysed more than 6,000 funding grants given out between 1997 and 2010. They found that less than a quarter of those grants, a mere 21%, went to women. During that period, male scientists received almost £1.8 billion, which is the equivalent of almost three billion US dollars in grants, whereas women received 488 million. That is pretty poor. That is shocking. My first thought is, though, I have to say, I wonder if that's partly because there are more male scientists at the top of very large labs. So the way that science and research works, is particularly within the more biochemical fields, is that you will have one person in charge of a large group of researchers all working towards answering the same topic, each person working on different fields within that topic. And then it's the head of the group, the head of the lab, that will be applying for the big grants. And I wonder if they accounted for the fact that men are more likely to be asking for the bigger grants than the women. I have seen other studies where they have accounted for that, and there is still the disparity. Well, it doesn't go into that much detail in the article, unfortunately. Yeah. Now we're just going to go on to our next story, which has been doing the rounds in the neuroscience field that I'm sure most people have had come across their various social networks at the moment, regarding the connectivity of the male and female brains. Article headline, Sex and the Brain, the Trouble with Hardwiring. Now, this is actually a review on the different articles which have been written about this topic. 
Okay. Are you from? Have you seen this come out? The I have seen the study itself. This is uh, I'm guessing the penis paper. Yes, maybe you could um, just tell our listeners, just give them a brief run through on what it observed and some of the conclusions people have been jumping to. So this was a group in Princeton that earlier this month. Uh, they published a paper called Sex Differences in the Structural Connectome of the Human Brain. And what they did was they took just under a thousand people and they did all these fancy MRI scans of the brain um, and looked at how the neurons in the brain all connect to each other. So our brain is a map of these thread-like cells and it's the connections between these cells that give us the function of the brain. And so they looked at males and they looked at females and they found quite strong evidence to suggest that males have connections within the hemisphere so the brain is separated into left and right so there are lots of connections within the left and there are lots of connections within the right but in males there weren't as many connections between the two hemispheres and for females it was the complete opposite where the connections between the hemispheres was much stronger and they suggested the scientists suggested in the paper that having connections within the hemisphere would make you better at analytical tasks and having connections between the hemispheres would make you better at more integrative tasks like multitasking and socialising, they said. They very oddly didn't mention the fact that these differences aren't necessarily innate differences because the brain is really flexible, we're learning throughout our lifetime. They didn't mention the fact that seeing as men are consistently, due to social stereotypes, doing more analytical things, and women are expected to do more social things, that it's very, very, very likely that women who've been practising their social skills due to these stereotypes that society is imposing on them have got a brain that is better practised at doing social things. And men who have been, through these social stereotypes, doing all of these analytical tasks have got a brain that is more used to doing analytical tasks. And they didn't mention this in the paper, and therefore the media have jumped on it, and that's what the media is saying. The media is saying, oh, look, this proves that men are better at reading maps and women are better at socialising and multitasking. Therefore, we can stop pretending that we're being sexist. This is innate differences between the sexes, and it's a load of bull. I have heard that, and... One of the people who brought that up, I will try to find a reference for the show notes later, but they Mm -hmm. pointed out that none of these differences were seen in the youngest groups. It was around the eight-year-olds. And so could it be said that the reason you see this divergence is because as you are entering adolescence, societal pressures on you to conform to pre-assigned gender roles start to play a much larger part and you're quite right that will just go on to have the effect of not forcing but actively encouraging people to develop in a specific way according to what their their community expects of them exactly and lots of scientists have come up with this exact same explanation so in the study they used um children between 8 and 22 and split them into three age groups. So this is a time when the brain is particularly flexible. And it does make sense that if we take the kind of obvious explanation that it's experience in a sexist culture or a a culture that divides the sexes into different tasks, 
if it's this experience that's creating the differences, the older children are going to have more experience of this and so are going to have more pronounced differences in brain structure. And this is, I think, the most likely explanation for the findings. And I think it is odd that they didn't mention this explanation in the paper itself. So the pink aisle in the toy store could be playing a large part in this. Exactly. Oh, I oh, I hate the pink aisle in the toys. Oh, I went to, uh, I was Christmas shopping today and I was having a look at the magazine section and that just got me so disheartened of the things, how the men's magazines look so interesting. They were looking at, here's the latest tech. Here's what's a good way to I don't know, keep your mind healthy. And the women's was just how to lose a dress size before New Year's. Our brain is designed to take in information from outside and the reason we have this complicated brain and the reason we rely so much on learning rather than having innate behaviours is because we need to be able to react to our environment. And as humans, we are amazing at reacting to our environment. So if you put us in an environment where the sexes differ, you're going to see brain changes. That's kind of the job of the brain is to change according to the environment. Which is why my daughter, this is just going off on a tangent at the moment, I have a young Mm -hmm. girl who's four years old. Okay. Now, I'm not actively discouraging her away from anything, but I'm just giving her free reign in such instances as what she wants to express an interest in, which is why I am currently looking at a toy of the Incredible Hulk riding Pinkie Pie from My Little Ponies. (laughs) That's... That's quite an image I have in my head there. It's interesting that you say um, that you don't want to sway her any one way or the other, because I've just finished reading a book um, by Cordelia Fine, who is uh, a neuroscience who works in this exact area on the brain differences between the sexes. And she wrote a book called The Delusions of Gender. And there was an entire section of the book devoted to looking at gender-neutral parenting. And what's fascinating is that even when parents say that they're being gender-neutral, they're not. We, we have so many innate biases and subconscious biases. And the problem is, is that young children pick up on our body language more than they do on our actual actions or what we say. So tiny, subtle differences like if you tense your muscles when you see a boy playing with a Barbie doll, or if you seem more relaxed and give more attention to a girl that's playing with, um, I don't know, a cookery set. Those are the cues that children pick up on. So it's very, very difficult to actually have a gender-neutral upbringing for children. Um, So perhaps you're doing a particularly good job if you have got the Incredible Hulk and My Little Ponies combined... Yes, well, sometimes he likes to ride over to have a picnic with Thor. Of course he does. Who wouldn't want a picnic with Thor? (laughs) This week's news and nonsense was brought to you by Confirmation Bias, the foundation of all alternative medicines, conspiracy theories, and supernatural beliefs. Confirmation Bias. You know it makes sense. Because you wanted to. Okay, so I think we have covered enough news for that section, and we are going now to move on to the questions and answers. 
Okay. Uh, first of all, I have two questions that were submitted on the Science of Sarcasm channel. Yes. Oh, sorry, the Science of Sarcasm website. First question. What is the worst example of sexism in science that you've experienced personally, and how did you handle it? What advice would you give to fellow female scientists with regards to dealing with sexism in their field? So this is a really interesting question, and I was quickly looking through the questions before this recording started, so I'd have some idea what I was talking about. And I have to say, I couldn't think of any examples of sexism that was personally directed to me. Within my scientific career, so this is science at school, my undergraduate degree, and the first part of my PhD, I have been particularly lucky, and I have been in the most wonderful departments. So at secondary school, I went to a girls' school. Um, unsurprisingly, they were incredibly supportive of girls in science, particularly maths. I had there was the most wonderful maths department at my school. And we had a fantastic maths class. So for me, being a girl that did maths wasn't a thing because, of course, everyone was a girl. So it was just whether you like maths or not. Then I went to Oxford for my undergraduate degree. And the majority of the biology course at Oxford is taught in the zoology department. And kudos to the zoology department. They are one of the best departments, I think, in the science area of Oxford when it comes to equality for the sexes. So I don't know if you know about this, but there are these awards called the Athena Swan Awards, which are rewarding departments for recognising equality in their departments. So, for example, making sure that departmental meetings don't clash with the school run, making sure that women are encouraged to put their name forward for promotions and all those kind of things. And the zoology department that I've worked in has always done exceedingly well in these awards and they really value equality in like it's something that they're very aware of and very proud of actually which is lovely so I have been surrounded at this point I have to say I'm an early career scientist I have been surrounded by wonderful feminist people my tutors are strongly and outspokenly feminist and so in my science career I will add because I know that a later question is asking about YouTube in my science career, I haven't experienced that much personal sexism, as in I haven't had anyone say to me, what am I doing there, why am I a woman, or I haven't had any sexually inappropriate advances. This isn't to say that they don't happen. So I know that in other science departments in Oxford, they happen. So I suppose the sexism that I experience is more the institutionalised, when you walk into the building, you, all the paintings on the wall are of men, white men in particular. When you're in lectures, the photos of the people doing the research are all of men with beards and the lecturer comments on how it seems that to do biology you've got to have a mighty fine beard like Darwin and that's reinforcing the fact that women haven't been involved in the science. Or when I'm reading a textbook looking about differences between species and they refer to homo sapiens as man instead of as human, it's those things that I notice in my science career. And so far, I have been lucky enough not to experience anything worse, although I haven't been to many conferences and I haven't really been outside Oxford. So that's not to say that they don't exist. Okay, this second question that came in via the website, I'm going to... I'm going to read it out. Read it out in full. Purely to tell that person how wrong they yeah. are. 
with all the discussion in the media about gay rights and gay marriage, it suddenly occurred to me, can science fix sexual orientation and make everyone heterosexual? On the chance that this person doesn't actually think homosexuals need to be fixed but has just phrased the question really problematically, the answer is no because we don't have that kind of resolution in our imaging technology and we can't really affect changes beyond making a rat turn left or right. So altering something as fundamental as someone's sexuality is just way beyond our means and will be for a long time. I mean, it would be, I don't know, similar to trying to make someone fluent in another language with the flip of a switch or something like that. It's just completely beyond our means. On the other hand, if this question was meant as it seems to have been written, the answer is no, because there is nothing which requires fixing there any more than fixing someone for having two feet, or fixing someone who is left-handed, or ginger. Well, there is something that requires fixing there, and that is the person's ignorance and bigotry. <laughs> yes. To be honest. And um, science can fix that. You're in luck, Jay. Science Schilling. can fix it. I have a fact for you. Um, homosexuality, so uh, in this case, this is same-sex courtship or mating, has been observed in 1,500 species, 1,500 species. It has been commonly observed in at least 500 of those. And so when it comes to homosexuality, that's a natural phenomenon. And when it comes to bigotry, let's just hope that the more we educate people, the less it will occur. In fact, I know of one species... I'm just waiting for it to come up now, of lizards, which is entirely populated by lesbians. There are no males in this species. They procreate through parthenogenesis by simulating copulation. It's the New Mexico whiptail. Yes, you're right, actually, because I, I worked with Miles on a video about his American animals that he found, and one of them was a whiptail lizard. So a lot of lizards undergo parthenogenesis so this is commonly known as virgin birth it means that they can re reproduce clonally without a male but because of the physiological things they need this physiological stimulus to kind of trigger it all off so they need to kind of have a simulation of sex to trigger it all off um, in the same way that because a sperm pierces an egg as it enters the egg when you do um, in vitro fertilization, you need something piercing the egg in order to trigger off the biochemical changes in the egg. And so in this case, because it's a clonal female population, it's got to be a female that does the job. Okay, moving over to the YouTube comments now with much trepidation. They're great. I have to say, I was really impressed with the questions that all you lot asked. They were wonderful. Okay, there are two questions from STS German. The first what were the most important laws that reduced sexism in science? And the second is, how much of the way male and females behave is biological and how much is cultural? Can you give a percentage estimate? Okay, so the first one first. I will admit here that I'm pretty rubbish when it comes to politics, but I think the most important law is the freedom to work for women. Because if you can't work, you can't really do anything. I mean... 
I was thinking this through. There, there are the obvious ones, like the freedom to vote, so you can vote for governments that allow you to pass more laws that promote equality, uh, freedom to vote, freedom to work, things like maternity leave. And I think that in other countries, compulsory paternity leave, where, say, you've got, I don't know, a fixed... 12 months leave between the two parents this is unrealistic you can tell that i've got no plans of having children anytime soon um that you have to have three months with the mother three months for the father and then split the rest however you want and if the father doesn't take paternity leave that leave is wasted you cannot gain it from the mother so things like that in other countries i think are going to make big differences because one of the commonly cited reasons why there aren't more women in high career positions in science is because of them taking time out for children and the more we have a society that promotes paternity leave and fathers taking time out for children i think that will really help oh just thought the 10 percent 90 percent one um i think it is impossible to tell um it's re- you can't separate them out i mean what control experiment would you have but it's more cultural than you think it is and read the Delusions of Gender book that I mentioned earlier on, because that explains exactly the problem we have with it. It's a great book as well. Okay, so next question from Gaz W. I'd like to ask, is there any advice Sally LePage would give for getting my daughter interested in science? She's not yet two, but I figure I need to get started before society tells her she's all about cooking, cleaning and making babies. I I love this question. It's great that you want to get your daughter into science. So she will constantly ask questions. Encourage that. Say how great it is that she's asking questions about the world. If there's something that you don't know the answer to, take that journey of discovery with her and don't make it like, I don't know, if she says, why is the sky blue and you don't know the answer? Don't say, because it is. Say, I don't know. How can we find out the answer to that? We mentioned toys before, I think, the toys that you use are very important. So I had not that many toys when I was little. I spent most of the time in the garden chasing after frogs. Um, I apologise to the frogs in the local area. Uh, and that's why I'm into biology. And role models are really important. There aren't that many female role models, particularly on telly. But there are some. So, for example, Alice Roberts is one of my big role models. Um, there are YouTubers like Emily from the Brain Scoop and on She Made a Video, which lists a whole load of female science channels as well. And just generally show her that there is science in everything. She will inevitably grow up with technology and show her how computer science and physics and engineering have gone into the technology or if she does like society, will probably push her into fashion and clothes. Look at the material sciences behind that um, and the biology of it and just just show her how great science is and how creative science is. And I don't think you can go far wrong with that. Okay, next question is from Bonnie43UK. What was Sally's opinion of the film Gravity, assuming she's seen it? I understand Professor Tyson panned the hell out of it for technical inconsistencies. I loved it. Wonderful in 3D, by the way. This is going to be a short answer. I haven't seen it. I saw the trailer and it looked terrifying. I'm terrible with psychological thrillers. I I got scared at Shaun of the Dead. I cannot cope with scary films. So I didn't watch it, unfortunately. (laughs) At this point, I have to admit, I have been officially banned from ever going into outer space by my wife 
because she has seen things like these and now that I actually made the mistake of understanding of explaining how one would actually die in a vacuum mm-hmm. I am no longer allowed to go oh that's a shame should it ever be commercialized to the point where I can actually afford it I have been banned you'll have to cancel that trip to the moon that you had planned for next month <laughs> I know you never know I mean with medical science I could live quite a while it's possible. I'm not sure if I'd want to go into space or not. It depends on the risks. I There's so much to discover here. I mean, there is the whole kind of mind-blowing effect of being able to see the entirety of your planet in a single field of view. But, I don't know. I, I'm undecided on whether I'd want to go into space. Okay, the next question is from Dyslexic Gamer. Can there be more than two genders? Like, on another planet, could life have evolved with more than two genders? Is there life on this planet with more than two genders? I really like this question. This is a great question. Thank you for sending it in. Yes, there is life on this planet with more than two genders. Um, uh, before we continue, I should clarify the difference between gender and sex. So I largely talk about sex because sex is the biological side of things. So in humans, this would be kind of what chromosomes you have, XXXY or any other combination um, gender is largely seen to be whether you identify as male or whether you identify as female. So it's much more of a mental state gender rather than sex, which is more of a strictly biological state. There is life on Earth that has more than two sexes. For example, fungi. So fungi have a really weird way of mating. What you do is you have two... So fungi, a lot of them look like tree roots in their networks they have lots of long thin filaments and when they want to mate two of these filaments will fuse but they can only do that if the two fungi are from different what we call mating types which you wouldn't think of as sexes so if they're from two different sexes so for humans that would be male and female but for fungi they have thousands of mating types and this just depends on what genes they have um, that determines what mating types they are so Say you've got a hundred mating types in any species of fungus, that means that this one particular fungus can mate with any of the other 99 mating types. And it makes much more sense, actually, um, because a better question to ask, almost, is why do we only have two sexes? Because if you think about it, you are preventing yourself from being able to mate with 50% of the population. And so you're making it 50% harder to find a mate and reproduce and survive evolutionarily. And so we don't really have a conclusive answer as to why there are only two sexes, largely. So two sexes does dominate um, sexual reproduction. And there are a couple of ideas. So there's the idea that... When two cells fuse during sex, so sperm and egg, for example, the cytoplasm, which is the jelly bit of the cell, contains genes, contains this DNA genetic information, as well as the nucleus of the cell, which is where we think of all the genes and chromosomes being. And so when the two cells fuse, you have these cytoplasmic bits, the bits in the jelly, that can compete, and this makes it quite unstable. So having two sexes means that you don't get this same conflict between them. Um, Another idea is that if you're forced to mate with someone outside of your own sex, it stops you inbreeding, stops you mating with someone related. But to be honest, we don't really know. And 
the two sex system, so male or female, has evolved many, many times independently. It's what we call convergent evolution. And so, yeah, it's a great question because it should be possible to have more mating types. And it makes more sense to have more mating types because you're less restrictive of who you can mate with. But we do largely only see two. So, and it's, we have a lot of ideas about it, but we don't have any one firm idea of why this is the case. So, great question. Aren't there cases where a member of one sex can transform into a member of the opposite sex? I read somewhere, someone was doing a review and they actually used Finding Nemo as an example. Finding Nemo. Because of how clownfish operate, and that if... It had been scientifically accurate, then after the loss of the only female clownfish, Marlin would have undergone a spontaneous sex change and become Nemo's mother. Exactly right. So this is a type of hermaphroditism. Um, I think it's sequential hermaphroditism. I think I may have one too many syllables in that last word. So in clownfish, you are default male until the largest individual is female. And then when the largest individual dies, the next largest becomes female. And so it means that your sex is assigned according to your social situation rather than your chromosomes, for example. And you get lots of different types of hermaphroditism. So sometimes it's age, sometimes it's size, social things. You have temperature-controlled sex as well. I mean, the way that you can... Sex determination mechanisms are really varied. Fish have quite peculiar sex lives from the point of view of a mammal. Especially, like, the anglerfish is particularly horrifying. (laughs) Yes, so the anglerfish is weird and anyone who knows the vlog brothers will probably know a bit about this the so the anglerfish is a really ugly looking fish that lives in the abyss so in the the marine trenches that are kilometers deep it's so black you cannot see anything and the anglerfish is called an anglerfish because it has what's essentially like a fishing rod the female does at least with a glowing light at the end of it so she can catch food The trouble is, though, when it's really dark and there aren't that many of you in a given space because it's such a big... So it's not only dark, but it's a huge space that they're swimming in. Finding a mate is quite difficult. So once you've found a mate, you want to make sure that you're going to actually mate and going to reproduce. And so the male takes clinginess to the next level, smells a female, is much smaller than the female, smells a female out, swims towards her, and then bites into her side, and then his mouth fuses with her body, and his body starts to digest itself, until all you have is basically his testicles stuck to the outside of her body, so that when she does need sperm, she can get it from what has turned from a male into essentially a parasitic pair of gonads. Uh, So anglerfish reproduction is completely strange um but it is because it's so important that they find a mate in such difficult conditions but fish in general because they have external fertilization so the female puts her eggs out into the water and then the male puts his sperm out into the same water that leads to some different things and we think that might be a reason why we see more paternal care so the male caring for the eggs more in fish um than we do in other animals Okay, the next question is from Gary Edwards. Is science the voice of white male power? (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't know how to answer this question. Um, I think that sounds far too philosophical and political. Um, science is a way of thinking, would be my answer. Science is a process by which we get the best information we have about the world. Unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world, and so some science has an agenda. The science that is publicised and therefore used in future science isn't always the best science. So, yes, I would say that science is largely skewed towards white males. I mean, one example of this is that in the past, people have found science, I'm using very big air quotes here, to show, obviously, that black people are biologically inferior to white people, um, in a similar way that the current studies we were talking about show that females have inferior brains to men when it comes to logical and analytical thoughts. And I'm in a field looking at mate choice, so how you choose your partner, where so much of the focus has been on females choosing the males and the males showing off and it's all what the male can do. And even after sex has happened, when it's the sperm that's swimming towards the egg, the male is in control and the male is able to manipulate the female's behaviour, doing all these chemical amazing tricks, actually. It's pretty fascinating. And very little, I mean, it's only been in the past 20 years or so that people have thought, oh, hang on a sec, maybe the female is less than just a, is more than just a passive vessel holding an egg. Maybe the female is actually doing something in this. Um, so in that sense, the the sort of topics that are studied in science uh, are, have been traditionally quite male biased and quite white male biased. So in that sense, but I'm nitpicking, I would say that science is as impartial as it can be. It tries to be impartial, at least. Okay, the next one isn't a question. It is from Keybean, I think. I really don't buy that there's a general problem with sexism in the scientific community. Never heard any concrete examples. Scientists also tend to be very liberal and much less likely to be prejudiced or bigoted. <laughs> Can I respond to this one first before I pass it over? Go for it. I feel I've been talking too much. Because I actually took the time to find a concrete example just for you, Kibane. Okay. This was an incident that happened earlier in the year with a biologist called Dean Lee, who blogs under the name oh, yes. The Urban Scientist. She was approached by someone who was working as an editor for a biology blog site. Now, she is a postdoctoral researcher, she is a professional, and she was approached by a money-making organization to provide them with material. So, with that in mind, she asked what the remuneration package was going to be, at which point the editor, who was going by the handle OFEC, responded that there would be none and that everyone would be contributing on a voluntary basis. Now, considering the amount of time and effort that goes into the blog she already does for the Scientific American, and her own work as a postdoctoral researcher, she did not see there being enough time for her to dedicate this amount of time without any sort of compensation, so she politely declined. Now, at which point OFEC responded with, are you the urban scientist or the urban whore? And I just can't imagine him saying that to any man. Yeah, it's strange that. Men don't tend to get called whores or bitches that much. Now, I have to point out that I don't like that word at all because I do consider myself a feminist and I consider myself an intersectional feminist. 
in that I also support sex workers' rights. But, as I said, I cannot imagine that kind of insult being directed at a man, and subsequent to her talking about this on Scientific American in her blog, their editorial staff decided that that was unsuitable for discussion on Scientific American and took it down. And it was only due to the public uproar caused by that decision that they ever put it back up. It is ridiculous. I I remember reading that when it came up. I think, though... So who was the person that asked this question? Or this statement? Keybean. K-Y-E-B-E-A-N. Well, to Keybean, then... The trouble is with that is that as an example of an unpleasant person, you can call them sexist, bigoted, or whatever, they are unpleasant. You shouldn't, but... I mean, this person obviously hasn't opened their mind to the evidence, could write it off as just one example. I also looked up an example (laughs) for this. Um, Because James left another question, actually, which I think it might be worth looking at now. I have it here. What is the best example or case to show people there is a problem when it comes to equality? Yeah, so I thought these two tie in nicely And because there are countless examples of people just being horrible. And you could say, well, that's not sexism in science. That's just there being horrible people. And there are people that say that you can show them the fact that, I don't know, 10% of professors in any given science area, for example, might be female instead of 50%. or And then they'll say, well, that's just because they haven't had enough time for equality And people can make excuses for surprisingly strong evidence. So I'm taking the view of, well, let's look for examples of sexism happening now. And there was one by Moss Rakusin. I have no idea how you pronounce that name. And their group in 2012, which has now become quite a famous example, actually, where they took 127 science committee boards who were appointing the position of a lab manager And they gave them CVs and they said, would you hire this person? And they gave them identical CDs, CVs, sorry, except that in 60 of the cases, the name at the top was John. And in the other 60 cases, the name at the top was Jennifer. Other than that, they were identical. And so they were pointing for lab manager, so a scientific position. And they asked them how do you rate this person? Like, are they competent? Would you hire them? Would you mentor them? Did you like them? And what would you offer as a starting salary? And guess what? They offered John approximately $30,000 a year as his starting salary. They offered Jennifer 26000 as a starting salary. Bearing in mind, these were identical CVs with the exception of the name. And the selection board's were not perfectly balanced but there were women on these boards and women showed the exact same biases because the problem is this is an innate bias they're not consciously discriminating and then they were given a five point scale how competent do you think this person is how hireable do you think they are and how much would you be willing to mentor them and out of five points the men on average scored 0.7 of a point higher than the women did so if the men on average were given a score of um, three, the women would have been given a score of 2.3, for example. But the worst thing is, is that they all said they liked the female candidate more. 
It wasn't the fact that they didn't like them. They said, we really like the female candidate. We just don't think she's qualified enough. And it's because we read different things into it. And this is happening now. And this isn't conscious, but it's still happening. And there are things. So when I was looking to publish a paper, I looked into whether I should publish under Sally LePage or S. LePage. Because in fields which are traditionally male dominated. So, for example, if I was an astrophysicist, a traditionally male dominated field, I would be less likely to be cited if I've used my name Sally rather than as a gender indiscriminate S because basically you need to show the gender that is appropriate for the field. And luckily in biology it's not too bad because biology is now seen as a more gender equal topic. But if you break the gender norms and if you are demonstrably female in a male environment your paper is less likely to be cited and in science a lot of it is based on how popular and how useful and how cited your research is. So those are two pretty concrete examples of it happening currently, not necessarily consciously, I should add. And this is the problem, is that your example of that horrific blog um, owner, that was an odious person. This is systemic. But I also found the reaction of Scientific American in trying to sweep it off it wasn't one of their employees she was blogging with them already but then when she actually discussed what had happened it was deemed not suitable for scientific american to discuss and actually taken down oh that's interesting there is one thing just when you were talking about the resumes i know that similar results have been found when they include names that are obviously associated with an ethnic minority and yes a lot of people have found that one of the best ways to become a more inclusive workplace is to redact resumes of all personally identifying information and let the work experience and qualifications speak for themselves. Yes, and this has been suggested. The problem with this in science is that you're, you're judged on your previous publications and you're judged by people in your field. And so... Your publications have to have your name on them and they will likely know who you are. So it's very difficult to anonymize a scientific CV. So because this, this was an imaginary case that they used, um, they could make it anonymous. But largely they will know your publication history. And so it's very difficult in the sciences because in other jobs where it's just like, I worked at this place and I worked at this place. And these are examples of tasks that I did. It's easier. The name doesn't make such a difference. But when it's, this is the paper that I published, and everyone knows that it was this person that published this paper, it does make it a lot harder. Just outside the scientific community, I found an example where a man named Kim O'Grady, who was working as a management consultant in Australia, had a very hard time getting interview callbacks until he added the prefix Mr. to his resume, at which point he received multiple callbacks. I saw that as well, and I thought that was very interesting. It was because he added the gender-neutral name that no one could. T everyone assumed that he was female, I think. It is quite worrying, especially when you mentioned how someone has to be so closely associated with their work in science that there really isn't an option of detaching the two. Yes, because, I mean, people are speaking at conferences all the time that they will probably 
know the face, not just the name. I think it is just simply impossible to escape your gender in science. Jim the Evil would also like to know how you would survive a zombie uprising. Now, did you happen to hear Jim's answer to your question on the last show? I did happen to hear that, and I think James said that he would the best way to survive would be to throw me at the zombies so that he could run away whilst they were feasting on my brains. Is that right? Yes, and I had to admit, it did seem like from a purely cold, hard, somewhat psychopathically logical point of view, like a viable stratagem. Yeah, but he's forgetting that my brains contain the best the best way to survive just generally, so he should just pick anyone, rather because all the strategies in my head he would be losing if he threw me to the zombies. Uh, <laughs> what am I talking about? Um, what my strategy would be, um, avoid James, first of all, I think is a good start. Get a load of food and just hide somewhere where the zombies can't come in. I'm one of those annoying people on video games that would just find a a dead end, hide in it and shoot anything that walks past rather than actually taking part in the game. Oh, you're a camper. If that's what the term is. I don't use games enough to know. But yeah, I, I just hide and then shoot anything that comes too close. Okay, now the next question I think we have already covered quite a lot is from Ibrahim Vazirabad. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. I would enjoy Sally discussing the prevailing idea that men are more capable at analytical thinking and therefore science, while women are more capable at expounding on the nuances of emotion. In essence, the logical male-emotional-female dichotomy. Yeah, so we talked about this a bit. I'd like to add that when you say that men think logically, the implicit opposite is that women think illogically, that no one ever mentions that. Um, because, of course, our women, we, we always use our illogic um, to think about things rather than our logic to think about things um, and again I would say read the delusions of gender about this but I'll also add that the problem with this social dichotomy that it's the men that think logically that when women are reminded that they're women and asked to perform a logical task they perform worse at it because they their social expectations that I am a woman Women do worse at logical tasks, therefore I will do worse at logical tasks. And that's why whenever you see results that say that men outperform women in maths tests, or this is the case in this test, or women outperform men in social tests, so much can be changed by how the experiment is set up, by the priming of it. So there's very famous experiments where you get a load of children to sit a maths test. If they have to tick a box, are you male or female at the beginning, women will do, the girls will do worse than the boys. With that in mind, what did you think of the advertisement that came out? It was one of the EU groups put it out to encourage women into STEM fields it's called Science thing. It's a Girl Thing. Yeah. Oh, God. So many people have asked me about this. Do you often wear high heels they into the lab? They tried so hard. Bless them. <laughs> I just have this image of a group of older white scientist men in a room thinking, women like lipstick and makeup and fashion. We want women to like science. Therefore, we'll show how lipstick and fashion have been influenced by science. And women like pink, so we'll film the whole thing in pink. And 
Uh... <laughs> I'd love to see what an actual supervisor would make of you writing on his or her whiteboards with lipstick. <laughs> it's like, you're scrubbing that off right now. Yeah, I mean, it's been pretty slated um, as a bad example of getting women into science. Um, but I have to give them some credit and at least they're trying. There were some other ads which they had put out beforehand which actually focused on individual women working in STEM. Mm-hmm. And I think they used the same tagline, but it was much less awful. Okay. For example, hello, I'm Natalie, I'm a physicist, I work here, I also am the lead singer in my band, these are what I do for hobbies, and this is what I do in my work. And it was just, it was a fun thing like that, but it wasn't this... Monstrosity. God, yeah, this god-awful view of what old white men think young women like. Yeah, so that's what I think would be the best way of doing it. And I know that L'Oreal do a similar thing. So L'Oreal fund an awful lot of fellowships for women in science. And I think Alice Roberts tweeted this. It's it's a little odd because it's like saying, oh, I'm the Jimmy Choo fellow for high heel fashion or something it's it's a bit odd having a company that so obviously throws and forces gender stereotypes down its customers throats to be sponsoring women in science but at least they have the money and at least they're spending their money however they get their money in order to promote equality and what they do is they have an awful lot of profiles on their pages about the women that their money goes to and how these are just normal women but they're also scientists and how normal women go into science. And I think that is the best way to, to tackle it. This is something of a tangent, but it was something I discovered about the cosmetics industry, which I found quite funny. There was these skincare ads where they make the claim that it contains a specific chemical which can plump up the skin. Now, in this instance, this plumping up the skin is otherwise known as inflammation. <laughs> Because the chemical was caustic. Now, it doesn't... The product itself is not caustic. Because the active ingredient is so diluted, there's no actual effect. The only reason they put this ingredient in is so they can make an ad which says it contains this, which has been shown to do this. Because that's technically true. Mm -hmm. It's just that the product won't do it. I am going to make a shameless plug at this point um, for a campaign that's going on at the moment um, run by the charity Sense About Science, um, which is a British charity, not-for-profit, called Ask for Evidence campaign. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's basically encouraging members of the public, if they see dodgy claims like that, um, they can provide you with these uh, postcards, basically, which give you these pre-filled boxes which you can fill in or you can download them off the website that say, you made this claim in this advert. Can you show me the evidence that backs it up? That's all it is. Um, And then people posting the replies that they get to the Sense About Science website. Because there are things like that all over society, like, I don't know, something like flora reducing cholesterol or makeup making you appear visibly younger in seconds or shampoo that positively makes your hair shine because it has crushed bits of diamond in it or whatever crazy nonsense they're coming up with next so yeah look for the ask for evidence campaign which tackles that exact problem or botox which injects a poison into your face that paralyzes at your least muscles. it works i have to say botox 
does the job that it is meant to do. It paralyses your muscles. And Botox can be very handy. I know that people that suffer from excessive sweating can get Botox injected into their armpits that stops them sweating as much. That's what you get from watching too much embarrassing bodies, knowledge like that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But so yeah, Botox does the uh, it does the job that it's meant to do at least whether that's a good job or not is questionable okay the next question again is one we have already covered i think in a large amount of detail it was from ldg519 are there any kinds of creature that has more than two genders if so what are the interesting examples so ldg i hope you're satisfied with the information that mm-hmm. we've given and i'm going to skip on to the next one black sabbath 86 should sexist jokes be banned do you think there is an in- equality in terms of how men are perceived expected to behave have you ever been the victim of sexism on youtube thanks for taking your time to allow us to ask you some questions smiley face ah lovely smiley face um the first part of that was do i think jokes should be banned no i think that comedy is a very important expression of speech I do think that we should create a society where such jokes are so frowned upon that no comedian would ever make them um, or no person would ever make them and expect to still have any reputation at the end of it. But do I think that they should be against the law? No. What was the second part of the question? Do you think that there is an inequality in terms of how men are perceived, expected to behave and have you ever been the victim of sexism on YouTube? Men are definitely expected to behave in a different way to women. Um, There's the whole uh, part of feminism is that men do badly in a sexist society because of things like macho culture. And so there is definitely a difference. Have I experienced sexism on YouTube? How long do we have? Uh, (laughs) Yes, in a word, I have got some horrible comments. There's one thing I haven't talked about yet is benevolent sexism, which is something that Emily Grassley from The Brain Scoop did a video on. I take months making videos, as you may have noticed. I don't make them that frequently. And I spent all this time trying to put the science across in the most interesting way possible. And it's all about, for me, sharing what I think is a fascinating story in science. Someone then replies, she's got lovely hair. Or aren't her eyes nice (laughs) or wow she looks really fit i do her or you know what i think she'd be great at giving me a blowjob or i want to shag her and it gets worse and worse until there are ones that i wouldn't want to mention on the podcast and it starts off as benevolent sexism it starts off as people thinking they're just paying a compliment when actually they're just seeing my appearance is more important in the video than the stuff that I'm talking about. Then there's the outright sexism. Um, people calling me bitch when they disagree with my argument. When they, If they disagree with me, it's obviously because I'm an irrational woman. Just so you know, the previous two episodes, when I put up promos for them, mm-hmm. between the two of them, they had one thumb down. Yeah. And that was on Aaron Raz, and it occurred at the same time as someone left a comment saying they liked him except for the fact that he was an... What was it? Oh, it's had something to do with the fact that he was a feminist, and that's when the thumb down appeared. Yeah. And on your promotional video, five thumbs down, because we're going to be talking about sexism. I'm so odious. Well, it's really interesting, actually, that you mentioned this, because it was either today or yesterday. Um, I did two podcasts with the League of Nerds, with James Gurney, and um, the first one about evolution... Everyone seems to be fine and happy with it. The second one, about feminism, has got a lot more 
um, dislikes to it. Uh, I mean, there there are only a handful in, in either case, but it, yeah, as soon as you mention feminism, people dislike it. As soon as you remind people that you're a woman, people feel that they can take you down or that you don't know something because you're a woman. There's mansplaining where people try... Oh, going into... I tried to buy a camera the other day and the guy in the shop tried to talk down to me. So then when I bamboozled him with every single technical term I had up my sleeve about cameras, he then backed off. <laughs> so, yeah, sexism on YouTube is awful. And so, like I say, my main area of research is sex and reproduction and the evolution governing the behaviours surrounding reproduction. And I, so far, haven't made a video about them on YouTube because I'm too worried about the hate that I'm going to get, which is really sad. And I'm, it's something that I'm kind of at war with myself about as to whether I make a video about it or not because I just know that the comments are going to be horrible. On talking about the jokes, there was a quote I saw from Lewis C. Keir recently. He said, if you ever find someone making a really deplorable sexist or racist joke, just with a completely straight face say, I don't get it. Explain it to me, please. And just watch them crash and burn. That's brilliant. I am totally using that. I can, I, I'm genuinely going to write that down. Oh no, actually, this, this podcast is recorded. It's great. I don't have to write it down. Yeah. That. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving on. Silent Sam 7532. I wonder what you think of my idea of part of the reason there is a lack of women in science. I think it is in part to how we decide toys for children. People too often think of educational toys of being a boy's toy, like a telescope or microscope or model rockets and such. People, please remember this is to be read out on a podcast. I think this really comes from homophobia more than sexism, though, because it is about subconsciously reinforcing classical gender roles in order to be sure that boys act like boys and girls act like girls. I have to remember to breathe from the stomach. Oh, and I go. hope you go into the difficulty of separating biological differences and cultural or sociological differences. I get the impression we've been mistaken in the past and labelled some things as biological when they are not, and likely the other way around. Please tell me you heard that. Yes. Well, I read it beforehand anyway. Yes. Uh, Good. <laughs> I'm not reading it toys again. Toys differences, yes. Um, we were talking about that before. Lego has descended into something horribly gender divided girly blocks and they used to be so good they, they used to be great i i did not know how gender divided they had become until someone showed me some of the adverts because in my eyes lego is a collection of multicolored bricks that's either like two dots four dots or six dots and now you get these sets of castles and stuff like that i never had any of that when i was little to be fair i was mostly running after butterflies when I was little as well uh, but uh, so was it Goldie Blocks there was a ad that people voted to play during the Super Bowl because it's an engineering toy for girls and it's for girls because there's a book that goes with it and when the character the female character in the book says she needs to I don't know build a pulley to rescue her dog they then provide you the kit to make a pulley to rescue her so you'll make it's like a meccano set but associated with a story and part of me thinks great that will get girls into it and part of me thinks but why does it have to be a girl's toy it should be a toy for anybody um there shouldn't be this distinction and yet there it's a horrible distinction um and yet there is and it's inevitably going to shake things because like i 
partly wanted to go into biology because I was playing in the garden and because I watched David Attenborough. A lot of my engineering friends said that they wanted to do engineering because they play with Meccano and Lego. So the things that you play with when you're younger do make a massive impact on what you find interesting later on. I have another essay to read, <laughs> so I'll just get right to it. This is from Jesse Parent. Sally, I'm very much interested in the divide between the two quotes, cultures, as C.P. Snow put it, or more basically between natural and social sciences, or humanities. I'm an advocate for multidisciplinary efforts in education. I think intellectual and academic or even cultural silos are a significant obstacle in terms of the world being a better, more open and understanding place. I think many of the biggest issues we face are going to require specialised understanding, but also the ability to interface well with others. So in that context, how do you see sexism in science playing out? I've got the comment on my screen here. Oh, thank goodness. Anyone <laughs> who wants to can go read it on the original video. So I, I was a little confused by this comment. So they're saying that there's this division between the humanities and the sciences, which there is, that they're saying that this is a bad thing, which I suppose it is, and that we need to be more interdisciplinary. It's interesting that because the PhD that I'm doing is actually called interdisciplinary bioscience because... I am taking aspects from maths and physics and engineering and chemistry and biochemistry and optics and all that kind of stuff and applying it to biological questions. I know James, yep. who we have mentioned before and who you did the interview with, mm -hmm. is actually working with his history department on his PhD. Exactly, yeah. Um, and there is a lot that science can teach the humanities and there's a lot that the humanities can teach science. I've had some fascinating conversations with some of my philosophy friends where I'm like, did you know that there's actually a study that shows exactly what you're talking about and they don't because um, they can enlighten me on the way that I'm thinking about my things so talking to people outside of your subject is always a good thing how that plays out with sexism in science I don't quite get that link to be honest with you I, I don't get how sexism fits with that to be honest less sexism is good more interdisciplinary is good hopefully they will both improve in the near future um when it comes to the advancement of science, I think that, that well, they've shown that diversity in a group improves the fu function of the group in every setting, whether that's species and biodiversity, or if you've got a more diverse boardroom, they're going to come up with better policies. The last question in this comment was, do I see having more women in science as increasing the fitness of the human species. Apparently he is using the word fitness from one of my videos. Unfortunately, it's not quite right to apply the word fitness to the species. Well, you can, but it's not a biological way of doing it, is what I should say. As a species, species don't evolve. Individuals do. Some debate about this, but largely we say nothing is for the good of the species, basically. So in my first inclusive fitness video, this is where I first started using multiple me's, I think. If something is for the good of the species, it means that you can have a selfish individual that takes over um, because they're exploiting everyone else's for the good of the species without having to pay the cost of the for the good of the species themselves. So having more women in science improves science and it will therefore improve society. And I suppose you could say that is improving our species, but I wouldn't say that that is increasing our fitness as a species just because that I wouldn't use fitness in that 
sense. Well, one example of including women in the research process was when seatbelts were originally designed purely with the male physique in mind. Mm-hmm. Which caused quite a lot of problems, because I don't know if my listeners have noticed, but there is something of a difference between the male and female chest area. Yeah, there is. It's odd that. Well, I mean, it's you say seatbelts, that's not the worst of it. The vast majority of drugs are tested on men because they need volunteers and it's usually men that volunteer. Therefore, the vast majority of drugs that you take haven't been tested on women. And when you don't test on a group, you don't know what the side effects are, you don't know how they work. It's like when they had thalidomide was tested on mice but wasn't tested on pregnant mice. And they tested it on humans but not on pregnant humans. And it's only on pregnant humans that you see the problems. So if you're not testing on a group, it's you need to be wary when you're giving the drug to that group. So there's problems in medicine with none of the drugs are designed with women in mind. Crash dummies themselves are the weight of men, or they used to be the weight of men. So it's not just the seatbelts, but the airbags and the arrangement of the car was designed for a male-sized body. So yeah, this crops up all over the place. I did see just when you are talking about the drugs testing that it can also be a problem with people from different ethnic groups or socioeconomic groups. Recently, it was discovered that the HPV vaccine tends not to be as effective for women of colour because the predominant number of women who were in the test groups were Caucasian. Yeah. And there are different strains of the virus. And so the vaccine was targeting that which was most prevalent in the Caucasian population. And it has much, much lower success rates against the strains which are prevalent among people of colour. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that at all. That is a very good example of it, exactly. And also, you might like this one, um, anaesthesia on redheads. Redheads respond weirdly to anaesthetics and painkillers. And historically, there have been big problems with um, redheads being killed during anaesthesia because they react differently to other members of the population. Luckily, I've only ever had to go under general once, and I was... I really don't remember it that well, because it was when I was a kid, and I intend to leave it that way. Yeah. Uh, Another thing, just when we were talking about interdisciplinary work, Mm -hmm. even just within the sciences, it reminded me of an article that I saw on Skeptic, and I know all the MRAs who tuned in just to give out about feminism are currently roaring in anger. Why are they roaring in anger? Because it's from Skeptic, which is... Feminist fortress against all thing good and manly. Okay. It was about the need for biologists to actually study mathematics. Because in one example, there was a paper figure called A Mathematical Model for the Determination of Total Area Under Glucose Tolerance and Other Metabolic Curves. Oh, don't curves. use that. Oh, that's, oh I, I saw this. Someone put it on my... So we've got a group of all the people on my PhD course and someone put it on the group saying, ha-ha, look at this silly person. Unfortunately, yes, there was an individual who, having not spent much time paying attention in mathematics class, thought that they had invented calculus. I just feel so sorry for them because they came up with calculus on their own. We, it is rather impressive. We call Newton was... a genius. Um, and who was the other person that came up with calculus at the same time as Newton? Um, oh, that's going to annoy me now. So two pe- two guys came up with calculus at the same time. 
and we call them geniuses for doing that. This woman's done the same thing, and yet, because it's already been done, we laugh at her. Um, so I think she's very good for doing that. But yes, um, but it's a good example of how much time you. A lot. Yes, I think it's a good example of how much time and effort someone could be saving and dedicating to something else if there was greater cooperation. Unfortunately, with PhDs, you have to get very specific because we have already extended the bounds of human knowledge in so many directions. Mm-hmm. That mo- all the low-hanging fruit is pretty much gone. Yes. The days when someone could discover something completely world-changing in their basement tinkering away is pretty much done with. Well, it's less easy, but that's not to say it doesn't happen. I listened to a fabulous talk um, at FameLab the other day with things like when you rip open a piece of sellotape, it glows. So turn all the lights off in the room, let your eyes adjust. Rip open some sellotape. And it will glow. And we don't know why that happens. And there are some really basic things that we don't like. They recently showed why hot water turns into ice faster than cold water, for example. Really simple thing, but no one's got around to doing it. So I don't think you should put off people by saying they don't happen. But yeah, a lot of the most interesting, or a a lot of the interesting questions that are being asked currently require a lot of specialist knowledge. And equipment. Like, looking at the sellotape thing, to actually figure out what's generating the light, I doubt many people have those kind of spectrometers just sitting under the kitchen sink. Yeah, fair. <laughs> I think they were going to send it to the... Um, there's a particle accelerator just outside of Oxford that I think is looking into that question at the moment. So, yeah, I don't think everyone's got access to a particle accelerator. But, yeah, you're right about the math thing. So the reason I did my course was because I've loved maths throughout my life. I did further maths at A-level, loved it. Um, I really like the simplicity of it. And I did this course because there wasn't enough maths in my undergraduate biology course. And I felt like I'd forgotten a lot of it. And I want to take these complicated biological ideas and write them in maths basically um and so yeah i think it's really important not even to necessarily know the maths but to know how to speak to a mathematician i think is very important i'm not sure if you noticed this but yesterday the website findingada.com ran into a bit of a wall with o2 now for those of you who don't know findingada.com is a website that aims to encourage more women to enter science, technology, engineering and mathematical fields. It's named after Ada Lovelace, who is commonly referred to as the first computer programmer. And while she may not have been the first, she was definitely among the best of her time. Mm -hmm. Apparently, the internet service provider O2 has set their child locks up in such a way that the website Finding Ada, which encourages young girls to go into science, is now no longer deemed suitable for children. Thoughts, Sally? <laughs> I saw someone tweet about this today. I'm like, what the hell's going on? Does O2 know about this? Is this just like they've used certain keywords and this has been flagged? Or have they been told and, and have, haven't done anything about it? I would have to assume that it must have been triggered by some kind of keyword snafu. But I don't imagine that the site itself, having looked at it, is using a lot of swear words or getting particularly graphic. 
and I can't imagine it having anything other than educational material on it, such as perhaps medical photos or terminology. Yeah. So it is worrying that certain people's prudishness is restricting people's ability to look into what should be just open academic subjects. Yeah, I think if this was the fault of a person looking at the website and deeming this unsuitable for children, that's obviously ridiculous. And, like, what were they thinking? I am hesitant to jump to those conclusions, though. I do think it was automatically filtered, and the problem is is that O2 haven't responded quickly enough, and that is the fault of O2. Uh, To be fair to them, it is Christmas time. Um, But there are other cases, so as you will have kind of gleaned from the topics I've been talking about, surprisingly enough, my search history looks a little interesting if you didn't know that I was a biologist studying sex and reproduction. Um, I mean, just before this podcast, I just casually type in fungi sex into Google. I really need to think these things through before pressing go. And there are a lot of websites that have amazing information on them that I can imagine being blocked by a generic filter. But it's so difficult to create a filter. And I think it is important that there is the option for children to be protected from the web. Because at a young age, anyway, when they don't know what they're clicking onto, obviously when they're old enough to kind of be taught how to use the internet, they should be, and the parents should be around to kind of monitor it. But the internet is such a big place, and you can't do all of it by hand. So I think the fault with this example is that O2 haven't responded quickly enough. You just mentioned Google there, yeah. and having listened to your previous interview, mm-hmm. apparently they assumed you were a boy. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they are. I can't remember how to search right now. Uh, so it used to be before Google Plus and before Google forced you to tell them who you were. They keep a record of what it is that you search for, what it is that you spend time looking at on the internet. And from that, they use their special algorithms to work out what you're more likely to want next, which is a great thing. So, for example, when I search for St. John's College, it now shows me St. John's College Oxford rather than St. John's College Cambridge, because that's the college where I am, Um, and sensible things like that. But they also, using this information, categorise you into who they kind of think you are. And Google thought that I was an 18 to 24 year old male because of the sorts of sites that I am on. And the reason that I mentioned this with James was because when I look at who's watching my YouTube videos, it splits it into age and into gender. And it tells me that um, on most of my videos, it's about 85% male. But of course, most people don't tell Google whether they're male or female. So this male-female data, I'm guessing must surely come from them guessing from what you're watching. So I don't know this, but I suspect that people that watch science stuff are assumed to be male, and therefore my ridiculously male-biased audience isn't as male as I think it is. Fingers crossed. Or maybe it is actually that male-biased. I want more women in my audience. (laughs) Well, hopefully you're right about Google's faulty assumptions. Yeah... Now, I think my audience has done a pretty good job of doing my work for me with regards to the interview, and I have kept you on quite a lot longer than the scheduled amount of time. 
That's quite alright. I'm sorry for rambling. It's no problem at all. So I'm just going to go now to the final section of the show, which is the guest-specific quiz. What? There's a quiz? (laughs) Today's quiz was brought to you by J.J. Abrams. Boom! Bang! Pew, pew, pew! Boobies! Lens flip. Whoosh! J.J. Abrams. Because thinking is hard. James's quiz last week was to identify from name whether a pathogen was a bacterium, a virus, or a fungus. And he did quite well. He oh, said geez. the score to beat is 9 out of 10. Is what out of 10, sorry? 9. No, oh, what? James, why couldn't you be worse at this? I obviously didn't get to the end of the podcast. Shame on me. Now, the subject I've chosen for you, given our theme tonight, was famous women in STEM. No! (laughs) Oh, no. This is... Oh, God. This is going to go terribly. Okay, what do I have to do? So, I will give you the name, and you have to name their general field. Oh, no. There are people who had multiple accomplishments, so if I had said... Florence Nightingale, you could respond with either medicine or statistics, considering that she is quite well respected for her work in both. Yeah, I'm going to be awful at this. Are you ready? Can I add now that I'm awful at remembering people in general, and that there's no excuse, I'm just going to be bad, let's go for it. Okay, April Erickson. (laughs) What a great start, never heard of them, let's guess, um... uh... Physics. Do I have to be more specific than that? Uh, astrophysics. There, there are a lot of women in astrophysics. Uh, no, you can say, you can just say physics. Ada Lovelace. Programming. Computer programming. Rosalind Franklin. Uh, the structure of DNA in X-ray crystallography. Yes, I know that one. <laughs> <laughs> Irene Curie. Oh, this was her daughter, and she also won a Nobel Prize. And. I'm going to guess it's also in radiation. Marie Curie? Radiation. And polonium and that kind of stuff. Wu Jian Xiong. Um, I'm going to guess... Um, material science. Barbara McClintock? The name rings a bell. Um... It's either it's, it's, I'm, I'm drawn between either medicine or agriculture. I'm going to go for agriculture. Mayor Carol Jemison. The name does not ring a bell. Um, what areas haven't I t- covered? Particle physics. Grace Maury Hopper. <laughs> this is shocking. Um, statistics. I haven't covered any of the maths fields yet. Maria Mitchell. Uh, this is a question of can I name a field in science? Um, genetics. Okay, well that is the ten. I just oh want to God. check one I'd thing. I'd love to know how badly I would do if this was men in science as well as a comparison. I am just double checking one thing. I'm sending one to the judges, which in this case is Wikipedia. Well, I might have guessed one of them by fluke. <laughs> you may Did have. I by fluke get the right answer? <laughs> Oh, I think you did fluke one anyway. Yes! So that's an extra tick there. <laughs> I'm going to guess that I, I got about just... four right. 
something like that. Something I'm shocking. just checking a second one. Okay, and I'm going to give you that one as well. Oh, you're so, so generous. Okay, so you got one, two, three, four, five out of ten in that quiz. That is not that good, but I'm surprisingly proud with it. I don't think oh, I don't think I'd have done much better with men, to be honest. Okay, I will be linking to the Wikipedia pages for all of these females. Please do. Scientists and engineers and mathematicians down below. The first April Erickson was the first female and the first African American female to receive a PhD in mechanical engineering. Hmm. Uh, the second Ada Lovelace was an English mathematician and, as we mentioned earlier, considered to be one of the best computer programmers in her era. Especially, this was at a time when computers were predominantly mechanical and not electronic. Yes. Uh, the third was Rosalind Franklin a British biophysicist and X-ray crystallographer whose work helped Watson and Crick. I had they stole without, her work. Without they stole her, her work. work. They and would never have been able to come up with the results that they did. And if she was given a couple of extra months, she would have been able to come up with the structure by herself, I'm sure of it. Number four was Irene Curie with her husband, and they were awarded a joint Nobel Prize for Chemistry. Now, you had said uh, radiation. Now, the form of chemistry being practiced here was predominantly with radiation and radioactive isotopes and transforming one element into another, which is why I allowed it. Yay! Because these are broad fields. Uh, number five was her mother, Marie Curie, which you also got right, a Polish and naturalized French physicist and chemist. And I believe... One of the very, very, very few people to win a Nobel in two different disciplines. Yes. I think she was almost certainly the first, but I don't think there have been that many since. The next number six was Wu Jianxiang, who was a Chinese-American physicist with expertise in techniques of experimental physics and radioactivity. She was She worked on the Manhattan Project, and she has a list of... Credentials and honoraries a mile long that I just don't have time to go in for. It's it just reinforcing the fact that I ought to know who she is. Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm just rubbing that in. But in fairness, she doesn't walk in your field. She True. did most of her work on beta decay in atomic nuclei. True. Still. Which I'm not sure it would come up that often in your papers. No, but I know who Rutherford is and I know who Marsden is. So, yeah. The next was number seven, Barbara McClintock. Uh, she was one of the world's most distinguished cytogeneticists. You had said agriculture, uh. which I allowed, because she produced the first genetic map for maize, linking regions of the chromosomes to physical traits. That's how I know her. Yes. Maize genome. There we go. I knew the name rang a bell. Uh, so, yes, I definitely had to allow that. The next is Mae Carol Jemison. She was an American physicist and NASA astronaut. Mae hmm. Carol Jemison was also the first African-American woman in space. Hmm. Grace Murray Hopper, number nine, was an American computer scientist and United States Navy Rear Admiral. Good for her. And Maria Mitchell was the first professional female astronomer in the United States. So does that mean that I got all the biologists right? 
I think you did. Yes, I can take some pride in that. I had considered doing a Nobel Laureates of Oxford quiz. How do you think you would have fared at that one? Probably, I don't. Uh, probably even worse, to be honest, because I don't follow the Nobel prizes at all, pretty much, except for the ones. There are a few where there are, there are buildings in Oxford named after them. I might do okay on them, but other than that, I probably wouldn't stand a chance. Well, that's all we have time for in this episode. On the next episode, we're going to be talking to Miles Power from the Miles Power channel on YouTube about GMOs and how everything Hollywood ever told you about genetics is wrong. So subscribe for that in future episodes. But before we go, Sally, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find more of your work and how they can keep up to date with you online. You can, uh, my YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash shed science. I'm on Twitter at Sally LePage. I have my own website, sallylepage.com or .co.uk. I'm on Facebook. I've got my shed science on Facebook. Basically, search my name. It's pretty rare and you can find me. And please do come and follow me. It's nice to keep in touch. Okay, well, thank you, Sally, for coming on today. And if you listeners enjoyed the episode, make sure to rate it, share it, or leave a review. Until next time, this is the Science of Sarcasm.